Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. You know, today is we're kind of, I thought we were going to finish John up. So what I told you last week. It's not right when your pastor lies to you, but um, we're not finishing John up. We're going to go an, another week. Um, it was just really, as I began to study, there was just more here. And so we're going we're gonna to stretch this into a couple weeks here. You know, the whole scripture um, of John, the whole passage, the whole gospel of John is, is this microcosm, really, of the whole Bible in some respects. Because when you look at 1 John, it says, you know, that, and that, that God is, has made the Son, the Word has became flesh, and, and it's, um, everything's been made through Him and for Him and by Him, and it's this whole picture. It almost looks at creation. And what is the whole point of that is that we, we endure all of the hardships and, and, and that God comes and He reveals Himself. And here at the very end, there's restoration. And what do we see in the end of Scripture in the Revelation? There's restoration. There's restoration of the, of the kingdom, of the earth, of, of the saints. I mean, everybody's restored. It's back to the way it was in the garden. And in some microcosm here, we're going to see the restoration of Peter. Now, when I say that, I shared this last week, and for some of you that maybe are studying and maybe weren't here last week, there are some commentators, some theologians that, that look at John chapter 21 and say, well, that really wasn't part of the original text of Scripture. It really wasn't part of the original gospel. It was maybe added later by someone else, or maybe even John added it later. And, and what I kind of explained last week is that I don't believe that's to be the case. All of my study, and I really believe that it was part of it. And, and they say that because it looks like it's um, a little different. It looks like it ends at the end of 20. And, and so what we said last week, if you remember, is that some um, scholars would say this is really an epilogue. And an epilogue, and I, once again, I'm no literary scholar here, but uh, an epilogue is something that comes at the end of a body of, of literature that kind of sums up some of the things that were left loose in the story itself. And so the primary thing that we see here that John is, is doing and kind of wrapping up here is what happened to Peter, <laughs> right? I mean, if you read the whole you know, the gospel, we see Peter all through it, right? We, John is talking about him and, and all these things that happened. Peter denies the Lord and he's, he's you know, cuts off the, the, the guy's ear there before, the, you know, before they arrest Jesus as they're coming to arrest him. And, and, and then we see all of this and it gets up to the resurrection and, and Peter's there at the tomb and he's resurrected. And then it kind of ends in 20. And I'm sure John's readers would be saying, what happened to Peter? Like, did he, did he get restored? Did he not get restored? Did he, did he fall away from the faith? I mean, what happened to him? And, and so John kind of comes back around to 21 and, and kind of shares a little bit about that. And so what did we look at last week is that Peter had this incredible experience where Jesus is coming in the resurrected form. He's on the beach and he's, he's cooking fish. And he calls out to them early in the morning and, and says, you know, have you caught any fish? And they haven't. And, and finally, John looks at Peter and says, it's the Lord. And then we see that Peter jumps in the water 100 yards off and he begins to swim to the shore because he wants to get to Christ. And we talked about this idea of, are we willing to jump in? Are we willing to just, do we want Christ that badly? I was thinking even this week a little bit, <laughs> I'm not really a sports fan. I mean, I, I like watching. I'll probably watch the game today. And I don't even care. And yet when I sit and watch a game, I get all tense. I mean, I don't even care about these people. They're making hundreds of thousands of dollars. Win or lose. And I'm sitting there like, oh, my gosh, i got to get up and i got to walk. i got to move, right? A couple weeks ago they were playing, and I said, 
I, I'm going to get you some food for us. And I left. I left the house, man. I'm like, I don't even care about this. And I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking, many of you are going to be uptight today. And hopefully jubilant at some point. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if that's, that's the tension that we would have with Christ? That we would so badly want people to come to Christ that we'd, we'd, have, a, we'd have a burden for that. That, that, would, that would carry that burden. That we would want that. that. That we would so badly be thinking all the time and meditating on the fact that I, I want to share the gospel with my kids and I, I want to pray for them. I want to be there. Because many of you went out and bought gear this week and, and you've done all sorts of things. You've bought party supplies. You've bought food. You've done all these things to prepare for this beautiful event that is really going to have no significance whatsoever on humanity. <laughs> right? But yet... The work of Christ, the transformation that he can make in someone's life, changes eternity. And yet for many of us, we don't seem to acknowledge that in, in our life in a lot of days. And so today, um, and that was a little bit like Peter, right? He had this intense relationship with Christ, and then he, he denies him, and, and he, he follows his flesh like many of us do, and, and he denies him three times. Peter was bragging, says, I will never do this, I will never do this, and then he does it, and Jesus calls him out and says, yeah, I knew, I, you're going to do this, and he does it. And so today, what we're going to see is this incredible act of restoration that God does, and we're going to talk about what that looks like in Peter's life, and then really how it looks like in our life as well. So the big idea, if you're new with us, I just want to let you know the big idea sometimes we use is this idea that kind of what's the overarching thing of what we're going to be talking about today. And so today's big idea is that Christ makes restoration possible. Christ makes restoration possible. And so before we dive into that, um, I want to pray uh, that God will give me the wisdom and the discernment uh, today as I, as I preach. Let's, would you bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, today as we open up your word, as we look at the text here today, these just few verses at the end of the Gospel of John, Father, that you will reveal to us what it means. John wrote it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a purpose, to teach us something. So, Father, help us not to wander in Scripture. Help us not to, to go where we shouldn't go. Help us not to assume things. Just help us to look at it and see what what we can take away from this in a way that glorifies you first and foremost, and that obviously is an edification to the body. Give me wisdom, give me discernment, so that we can glorify you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So let's, let's take a look. Christ makes restoration possible. What, what, what kind of restoration? We're talking about restoration. This idea that, that Peter has been, um, because of sin, because of denial, he's been detached a little bit from Christ. He's, he's, he's in sin right at the end, and then Jesus dies, and, and we don't know. And so what we're going to see here is that in Christ's love for Peter, he's going to so beautifully come back to him and personally restore him. And we're going to see all the ways I think that we can kind of take from the Scripture here how this happens. And I will tell you that today, as, as we read through this text, um, there's going to be some of you that have heard this message a hundred times and, and you've heard pastors say different things. And I will tell you that some of the things I may say, you may say, well, I, I, I heard it this way and I heard it that way and that, that's okay. I'm very careful when we 
look at the text not to add things into the text, not to assume things. They may be true, but I'm, I'm probably more cautious about how we do that, and so uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. So let's dive in. John chapter 21, verse 15. We're going to look at the first part of 15. It says, when they had finished breakfast, because you remember, Jesus had brought them to the shore. It's early in the morning. It's just sun. It's just come up. They've caught a bunch of fish. They understand it's Jesus. They're thrilled. They get to the shore, and it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, the first thing I want to address, because if you've heard this message very, very much, you've heard this word love is, 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 is a different word when God says it, when Jesus says it, and there's a different word when Peter responds. You know I love you. One is agapo. It's this idea of a, 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 very, important, um, a very important love, but, but once again, it's not... Um, I don't know that there's any difference. What we're going to see here is when Peter responds, he uses the word phileo. It's this idea of more brotherly. Um, and, and so we want to say, well, are they, is Jesus saying one thing? Is Peter saying another thing? I don't think so. And I'm not going to go into a, a big dissertation on this. But when you look at John's writings, he uses synonyms all the time. He's mixing words up that mean the same thing all the time, even in this text about uh, feed my sheep and, and um, care for my sheep and all of these things, tend my sheep. There's many words that he mixes up and he uses them interchangeably. We can go all through scripture and we can see that these words mean different things. And so I don't think, I think you can read into it if you're not careful that, these, that Jesus is trying to say something. And I don't think that's what's happening here. He's really just asking because the whole focus of this whole text is, is, is just right there clearly. It is about Jesus restoring a man that has walked away from him. That's the point, and that, that's the weighty thing that we want to take away. And so let's not get too much here. And then what does he say here? He says, do you love me more than these? What are these? There's different thoughts on that. Some, some people think that Jesus is, is asking Peter, do you love me more than the fishing, you know, the fishing business that you have, more than these fish? Will you leave all of that do you love me more than your stuff? Eh, I don't think that's contextually what this means. Could he mean, but do you, do you love me um, more than, than these guys do? Like, do you love me more than these guys? And I think that's really what he's saying. Because he's publicly here with them, right? They're still here. You know, in this text, sometimes we think it's just Peter and Jesus here. It's not that way. There's still these other six guys here along with Peter. He's talking to them, and he's saying, do you, do you love me more than these? Now, why would he ask that question? Because he's restoring Peter. And if you remember correctly, Peter was really good about speaking up in front of everybody about how much he loved Jesus, wasn't he? He would say, well, I'll never do that, Lord. I don't know about these guys, but I'll never do that. He was the one that drew the sword and, and cut off the ear. He's very much out front about his, his passionate love for Christ. He was the one that jumped in the water and swam. He's the one that got out of the boat and walked on the water. He's always this, this out there. And so, and so what Jesus is really doing, he says, do, do you love me more than these? Because he's kind of reminding Peter of that passion that he had before he denied him. He wants to rekindle that. He's not saying that's bad. He's, he's saying, no, do you? Do you? I want to know. And, and he's reminding Peter of his passion for Christ. And so I think he's really just saying, do you love me more than these guys? doesn't mean that the other disciples did not love Christ. That's not what he's saying. We can see this multiple places. 
So what's the first thing we kind of see here? We're going to look at a few things that I think that we can see about this restoration. Is The first one is that Jesus restores Peter publicly. Jesus restores Peter publicly. He restores him in front of his brothers. He's asking a public question, do you love me more than these guys? Do you love me, Peter? And he says, well, yes, you know I do, right? And he's restoring him publicly. He wants these guys that that are going to be around Peter. And we're going to see that Peter's ultimately going to lead the church in some ways for probably 30 years. And so he needs to restore Peter. And Peter is going to say yes. And these guys are going to see that Peter's faith is there. And yes, he, he loves Christ still. He hasn't walked away from him. And so he restores Peter publicly. He goes on there in the second part of 15. It says, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Notice that Peter just says, doesn't say, yes, I love you. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. Now that's a, that's a different, that's a very humble spirit all of a sudden that Peter has that he hasn't had in the past. He's told Jesus what he's going to do. He's told Jesus, you will never do this, right? You, you'll never die. You, you're not going to go, and I'm not going to let that happen. And Jesus rebukes him, and, and we see this multiple times. And Peter's whole spirit now has been changed. He's been humbled. And he's probably a little sheepish. <laughs> like, Lord, you know I love you. Not, not, no bravado now, no, no arrogance here, no telling Jesus, right? And so what does Jesus tell to him? Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Now, once again, there's this word lambs, and there's a word sheep here in a little bit. And some people would say, well, see, he's meaning different things. That's possible. It is possible. But once again, we have to be careful to read into it. We, we just know that Jesus is commanding him to care for the flock, to care for the sheep, the young sheep, the new sheep, the new believers, the old believers. It's everybody. It, it, he's asking to care. So really what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm not calling you necessarily to be a pastor per se. I'm calling you to care for the church, the sheep, the lambs. If you love me, this is what I want from you. This is what I expect is that you would care for the flock. And I will tell you, as I was reading this this week and studying um, this idea of, of, of our role as elders and pastors, and it, it once again was this incredible um, weight, but yet a privilege uh, to say, this is, this is our response. And, and we had a family meeting the other day, and we talked about this, is that we are not to lord over as elders and pastors. We are to serve the flock and to care for the flock. And we are to care ultimately for each other. So... Jesus is saying that he, he needs someone to care for the flock. And so I got to thinking, like, well, why would he be saying that? What, but, well, Jesus has been talking about this really in his ministry. If we go back all the way to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 and 37, Jesus is here, and he's, there's crowds, and he says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. So Jesus is setting the the stage here. He's he's reminding his disciples early on in the ministry is that there's a harvest and and, and my people need shepherds. They need people. He's he's letting them know very gently that when he goes, there's going to be a requirement, a, a privilege for them to step up and to be able to begin to serve one another. 
Again, in Mark chapter 6, the gospel of Mark chapter 6, verse 34, it says, when he went ashore, he was in a, in a boat preaching, and he went ashore, and he, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And so what is the primary role of the shepherds and the flock, or the, the elders and the pastors? And is to teach. It's to feed. When we look at this word feed, it's, it's to teach, right? I mean, I could get up and, and I could say lots of things and I can do lots of things for you and, and, and I can serve you. I can come to your house and I can, I can bring you food and that's all great stuff. But the primary thing that you need is the word of God. It is, we serve one another because of the word of God, because what Christ has done for us. But the primary thing people need is, is the, the word of God, the truth of Scripture, to see the glory of God, to see who he is. And many times, even in, in our Western culture of Christianity, sometimes we're not careful, the church begins to become um, very much just a, a servant to the people and, and maybe almost even social justice. And don't get me wrong, I think the church should care and pray and, and, and be doing things in, in the community. But everything needs to be make sure it's wrapped in the truth of the gospel and that the gospel is getting presented to people. I've said this many times here in the last few years. For years, we did... Um, what we call the car clinic, where we serve anywhere from 60 to 90 families, and we fix their car, we feed them meals, we cut their hair, we do all sorts of things. And we love those people. We, we wanted to serve them. We wanted to be Christ to them. But for years, maybe 10 to 15 years, we did that, and we never shared the gospel. Shame on us. And so a few years ago, we said, this can't happen anymore. And so when they come in now, and when they check in, they they meet somebody and they are brought in here and sit at a table and someone sits down with them and they have a 15, 20-minute discussion. We ask about their life. We ask about what they know about who God is. Do they believe? Are they religious? What happens to them when they die? What do they think? We pray with them. We ask them if we can share the gospel with them. We give them a Bible because the primary thing is the gospel, not fixing their car. The whole idea is that they, they can see our love for them by fixing the car, and so they care about what we have to say because we're not just, they're just not a project for us to, to say something to them and say, well, they want me to believe what they believe. No, these people love me, so I'm going to listen to what they have to say. They can see Christ in us. And so what do we see here? Not only does Jesus restore Peter publicly, but what's his purpose here? Jesus restores Peter so he can care for the sheep. See, he has to be restored because Christ has work for him. He has a, a purpose for him. He needs to be restored so that he can care for the sheep, so that he can teach. And what we're going to see is that, that Peter's going to live probably another 30 years, we would imagine. And he's going to continue to serve the church and, and set up elders and, and, and teach people and share the gospel. Jesus restores Peter so he can care for the sheep. I would, I would ask you that if Christ has restored you, and we use this word restore, we can, we can put other words in here. We could say, has he saved you, right? Because really that, that we've seen salvation in this restoration. It's this idea that it's an affirmation that God has done something in Peter, and Peter is his. And I would ask you, if you've been transformed, if you've been born again, if the supernatural thing has happened, which we talked about last week in you, Sometimes we use this word regenerated. You've been regenerated. If that's happened in you, do you understand that that comes then with some responsibilities? Because sometimes we want to say, well, that's all just the pastor's job. 
that's not really what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that the shepherds help prepare the flock so that they can share the gospel. To minister to one another. We share each other's burdens. That's exactly what Troy got up here and said when he shared about all the people ministering to him. And it's not just doing works for people. It's about sharing the gospel. It's about teaching one another. Look, there's lots of people in our church that, that teach life groups, that teach Sunday school, that teach youth ministry, that teach adult stuff. They're teachers. And the idea is that they're feeding the sheep. You should feed one another. As parents, you should be feeding your children. As husbands and wives, you should be feeding each other. As small groups, you should be feeding each other. The idea is that you take each other to the Word of God and, and we feed on it and we understand it. We want to dive in and learn it better so that we can conform to it and that we can honor God in it. So Jesus restores Peter so he can care for the sheep. I would say that if, if you're a born-again believer, one of your responsibilities is to feed the sheep. Don't say, well, that's his job. No, when I, when I, when I was standing back there this morning and I, I saw all of you and, and, you know, because of COVID, our attendance has been down and, and last week our attendance is back up and, and today our attendance I think is good. There's a lot of you here today and I thought, I can't, I can't do all this. I, this. They have to feed each other. They need to love each other. They, and, and exactly what Troy said. And so I just, I, want, I'm not, I just want to share that responsibility with you. It goes on here in verse 16. It says, he said to him a second time. Now, Jesus is coming back to him. Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I do. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know. There it is again. It's this humble spirit by, by Peter. You know that I love you. Like, why would you ask? I don't know that Peter really quite understands why Jesus is asking yet. I don't know. Maybe he does. Maybe, he hasn't, maybe he's put it together. Maybe he hasn't put it together. It's a little bewildering for him. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend to my sheep. Tend them. Not, not lord over them. Not drive them like cattle. I mean, I, sometimes I think even there's this, this challenge for, for pastors and leaders to, to want to drive sheep. <laughs> right? Like with a, one of those electric things, you know? That you, I've never, no, I have probably thought about that before, no. I, it, it's, it's because we, we want so much for someone. And we, we can see their life and we can, we can see the struggles. And sometimes we've seen them because we've, we've seen them in our own life. And we want them to go this, and it just, I was talking to someone this week that's struggling in some relational situations. In fact, I've talked to a couple different people. And, and they said, it just, it doesn't, it does, it, that doesn't make sense what they're doing. One person says, it's not logical. And I said, sin never makes sense. And it's never logical. You, if, if you're wrestling with someone or if someone's struggling in sin and they're in disobedience, don't expect it to look natural. Don't expect it to look like it makes sense. It doesn't make sense. Right? Why would it make sense to, to be, just give an example, what would it make sense to be married and cheating on your spouse? It makes no sense. And so when someone says, why would they do this? Because of sin, because of the temptations of the world, because of lust, because of all of those things, because of pride. It, it doesn't make sense to the spiritual-minded person. But the challenge is, is that if we look at our own life, I can look at my own life and say, wow, what I did yesterday sure doesn't make sense. What I just thought about and what I pondered on, why would I do that if I've claimed to know Christ and I have a comfort and I rest in him? doesn't make sense. And so here, 
Jesus is reminding them, tend the sheep. They, they need you. One of the things I'm so blessed about here at, um, at the church is that we have several people that, that get involved in, in people's lives. And, and not just feeding. We have a great group of folks that feed and teach. And, but we have, we have people that sit down and counsel, disciple one another. And we're growing in that. And I will tell you that that's what the church should look like. And I know for many of you, that's a challenge. You say, well, I don't. Some of you have been married for 30 years in, in, a, in a biblical marriage. You love one another. And if I said, hey, would you sit down with another couple and kind of mentor them? They just got married. Oh, no, we can't do that. You've been married 30 years. You don't think you've learned a few things? You don't think that you can share some wisdom with this young couple that's getting ready to start their life together? You know the Lord. You've sat in services for years, for 30 years, it's time to, to feed the sheep. Here's an opportunity. Feed the sheep. Because if we are not, we will become, it's not enough. You're not going to get enough feeding in 30 to 50 minutes here from the pulpit. It's not going to be enough. Yes, you should also feed yourself. You should be in the Word. You should be studying. But we should tend the sheep as he is telling Peter here. Next verse, verse 17, it says, He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John. Now, this, if you've noticed, each time he says son of John. Simon, son of John. Why doesn't he call him Peter? Now, once again, I don't know. It's, it's possible <laughs> that Peter is kind of reminding him, or that Jesus is kind of reminding Peter that, you know, because when he calls him Cephas, or rock, is that G he's kind of building Peter up here. Notice that he's not doing that with Peter now. Maybe he's kind of reminding Peter that, yeah, you are going to be the rock, but you aren't the rock right now because you have just denied me three times. And so I'm going to remind you and humble you by calling you Simon, son of John. Once again, a third time, do you love me? This time Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. Why do you think Peter was grieved? I believe, once again, we're reading in here. I believe that what Peter now is grieved because he's being reminded that, oh my guess, I have denied Christ three times. And I see what Jesus is doing here. He's reminding me of my sin. He's, he's reminding me that I denied him. And so he's grieved. His, his sin is brought back to memory. I, I would also say this about that. Sometimes we want to say, well, God has forgiven us, and so the sin is gone. And it is. It is in, in all real senses of, of as far as we've been set free from it, the bondage of it, the penalty of it. But many times, do you think it's good to remember our sin? Yes. It reminds us of many things. Real quickly, it reminds us first and foremost of that we don't want to go back there. It reminds us that it is, we are capable of that. Sometimes we think we're not capable of certain things, and then we do it. And then we realize that we are capable of that. It reminds us of sin. It reminds us that everyone sins. So when I'm looking at someone else, it, I, I need to be reminded of my own sin so that I don't judge too harshly of them, right? It's the, the person that has the splinter in their, their log in their own eye and trying to get the splinter out of somebody else's eye. It reminds us of our own sin. And thirdly, and there's many reasons, but thirdly, it reminds us of the greatness and the mercy of God. Because when we realize we're a sinner, the mercy and the grace of God is that much sweeter. But if we walk away and think that we are self-righteous, all of those things now become clouded. And so here, do you love me? Peter's grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, now look at what he says this time, Lord, you know everything. 
You know that I loved you. Now Peter's just saying, Lord, you, he's just yielding completely. He's just saying, Lord, you know everything. Not only do you know that I love you, you know why I did what I did. You're the one that told me why I was going to do what I did. You predicted it. Lord, you know everything. There's just this incredible submission at the feet of Christ. That's why he jumps in the water. He comes and he just throws himself at Christ, I think, when he comes up on the shore. And what does he say? Jesus says, feed my sheep. Here it is again. So this, the importance of, of the text here is this restoration of Peter, this idea that he's restoring him publicly. He's restoring him so that he can feed and care for the sheep. And then what else do we say? Jesus restores Peter personally. The whole idea that he goes through this three times with Peter is to restore him personally. It's, a, it's an intimate restoration with Peter based on Peter's specific failings and sin in his life. He specifically addresses Peter in this. I would tell you that that's true for us as well. Christ comes to us personally and works in our heart with specific sins. Specific. I, I, years ago, I, um, many years ago, 30 40, 40 years, 45 years ago, I, I, did, I did something horrible multiple times. And um, I was a high school student. And uh, I, I don't mind telling you, I took money from some family. And it wasn't $10. And by God's grace, when I became 18, I gave my life to Christ. And it was like, whew. I asked forgiveness, God's forgiven me. And I'd done lots of other stuff too, but, you know, that was one that, and you know, when I was about 25, God said, I want you to tell those people, and I want you to restore, I want restoration there that they didn't know, and I want you to give money back. Well, I didn't have any money at 25. And so I said, yeah, but Lord, you love me. And you've forgiven me. He says, yeah, I know, but I still want you to do that. Well, that lasted for a few days, and I got over it. And um, I don't know, 30 years old, God came knocking again. I want you to do this. It was a burden. I said, Lord, you love me. It's going to break my relationship with these people. It's not going to go good. I, just, I can't even visualize myself doing that, Lord. I, I can't do it. I got over it. 35, I got over it. 40, I got over it. Somewhere about 45, I was at a conference in Columbus. And there was a man preaching, and God crushed me. It was like a Saturday or a Friday, Saturday. He crushed me. I had no choice but to do what he was asking me to do. And so that Monday morning, I wrote a check, and I went and I talked to these people. And they were gracious. And I'm not saying it's always going to work that way, so don't hear that. Just because you're obedient doesn't mean it's always going to go well. Your obedience is what God is after, right? And it was like a, a, a burden that was relieved from me. Now, did God ask me to do that with everybody else I'd sinned against in my entire life? Oh, no, thank goodness, <laughs> right? 
He's not put that burden on me for everything else. But what I'm trying to get across to you, there's certain things in our life that God comes to you specifically on something and says, this I want you to do. I'm restoring you, and this is what it's going to require. This is what I need you to do. This is the obstacle in your spiritual growth. It is the stumbling block, and I need you to relieve it. I need you to let it go. I need you to repent for it. I need you to confess. I need you to share, but it needs to happen. And if you love me, you'll do that. That's really what God kept telling me. You say you're mine, Raleigh. You say that I have your life. You you trust me with everything. And if you do that, then let go. And that's what we see here with Peter. He's let go. He jumped out of the boat, man. He doesn't care. He's there. God is restoring him now. It's specific to this particular sin. Do you think Peter didn't have other sins that he was? No. But he is specifically restoring him on this particular one. It had a purpose in Peter's life. And how do we see this come out? Let's, let's take a look here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. We, we can see here how, how Peter's responded now. You know, years later as he's leading the church and he's writing here to the church. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Let's just do 1 through 3. One, yeah, 1 through 2. One, 1 and 2. So I extort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So first of all, right there, he's being humble. He says, I'm just a fellow elder, right? I'm just one of them. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Right? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Notice that when Jesus is talking to him in, in these, what does he say? Feed my sheep, Peter. They're not your sheep. They're not yours, Peter. Right? Tend my flock. Right? This is what he's asking Peter. And we can see this demonstrated here as he writes here. He's saying in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. He's, He's acknowledging that this is God's people. It's God's sheep. Peter is very humble here now in his leading as an elder. And then he says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, for not, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So in other words, I think what he's saying is, look, just, just because you have this authority now, it has to be a heart-driven thing. It, it, ha- it can't be a, a, a human, worldly-driven thing. So many times we can get wrapped up, even as pastors and even as, as people that serve in the church, it, it becomes about, uh, in fact, many of our churches have become very organizations and, and almost worldly in some ways, and, and we have to be careful of that. Here he's saying, you're not doing this for gain. You're not doing this to make lots of money. You're not doing that for any of these things. You're doing it because you love me, Peter, and I want you to do this. It goes on there in verse 3, and it says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Boy, that had to, I mean, Peter learned a lot of humility. Now he has to be an example to them. He has to behave himself. (laughs) And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So this is when you're faithful, God will honor you. All right, let's look at verse 18. 21 verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, now he's shifted a little bit. He's restored him, but now he's gonna tell him something else. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. 
He said this to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God. So now what he's telling Peter is, is that I've restored you, but you are going to die for me. Ultimately, you're going to be crucified. We see this wording by John multiple places in, in the gospel. We see it first in chapter 12, verse 32 and 33. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus talked about himself here, I will draw all people to myself. And John then in the text says, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So we know now that the why that John is saying this here in John 9, or 21, 19 is because we see that. Also in John 18, verse 32, it says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So when John is talking about this and then he tells them, he said, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to do to glorify God. He's saying Peter's going to be crucified. It's this idea of stretching out your hands. People are going to carry you. We do not want to go. He's reminding Peter of what's going to happen in his life. We're going to tie this into next week then, or a couple weeks from now when we finish this up. And then, so what do we see? The final restoration. Jesus restores Peter so that he can live and die for God's glory. So not only is he restored him publicly, he's restored him so he can care for the sheep. He's restored him personally and intimately, but he's restored him so that he can live and die. Don't miss that. Live and die for the glory of God. He calls us to die for him. For his glory. Not just to live for his glory, but to die for his glory. How we live out our days. He calls us to live and to die. We see this in 1 Peter, again, Peter's writing, chapter 4, verses 14 and 16. It says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, and we're talking 2,000 years ago, But boy, that's true today. It's true all over the world. It's clearly now coming true in our culture today. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Now most people, most of you probably don't feel that way. In fact, I would argue that most of you aren't probably being insulted for Christ. I feel this way sometimes too because I'm not sharing Christ with people like I should. And if I would share with Christ more, I would probably be rejected a little bit more. Says you are blessed because the spirit of the of the glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Live for him. Live for him. What does that look like in your life? I asked you that last week. How are you jumping in? Where is that in your life? Are you living for him? Are you living for yourself? And that we have, to, we have to live for ourselves. We have to provide. We have to work. We have to eat. We have to care for ourselves. We have to raise children. We, there's a piece of that. Don't get me wrong. But at the core, are you living for him? And then I would ask, are you willing to die for him? And not only are you willing, but when you Begin to die, and we're all dying at some level. Will you glory in him as you die? I think of Becky Fitzpatrick. She's talking about Jesus with everybody she could. Going to the cancer clinic, praying for people. Just, she was just, 
She, she was ready. She says, I'm, whenever the Lord wants me, I'm ready to go. She wasn't holding on to life. She was willing to die for him. She knew what was coming. So I want to ask you a question as we close here. A couple things I just want to share. Do you need restored? Do you need forgiven? I would hope you all say yes. If you understand that you're a sinner, if you understand you have sin, you definitely need restored. If you have no relationship with Christ, clearly there's something that I believe that God is speaking to you this morning that you need restored. I want to take you to John, 1 John now. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. John addresses this restoration and how it looks. And then we'll, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then this most beautiful piece of this text is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's restoration. If we say we have not sinned, we make it out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So basically when I asked you that question, do you need restored, do you need forgiven, anybody that said no, you could look at what John just said and says, well, you're a liar because you have sin and you need restored. See, I set you up for that, didn't I? So what's the key, key point here of the text? What's, what's the key point that I want to leave you with this morning? Spiritual restoration is only possible through Christ. Spiritual restoration is only possible through the work and the atonement and the resurrection of Christ. There is no, and, and, and then the confession of the believer Paul puts it this way. This is, this is how it works out. There's many places we could have read, but Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Now, in verse 1, he says, Now, therefore, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He's saying, for, if you're a believer, there's no condemnation. You've been restored. But now in verses 3 through 4, he's going to explain kind of what God has done to make that possible. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. See, because we can't obey the law because the flesh is weak. How did he do that? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He became flesh. He took on flesh. But he did not sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus died in the flesh, even though he wasn't a sinner. So God is condemning the sin in the flesh, in order that the righteousness, righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We need a righteousness that we do not have. And so we get it because Christ gets it for us by dying a death that he does not need to die. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us because we need it. Christ gives it to us. Now look at the rest of this who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Christ does it, but the, the caveat there, it's in Christ, those who are walking in Christ. So the restoration is only possible through Christ. Not any other way. Not by good works, not by giving money, not by attending church regularly, not by teaching Sunday school, not by being generous and loving and all of those things. Those are all great things, but they're all fruit, hopefully, of a transformed life. And so I just want to be very practical as we close this morning. 
What's the next step based on these truths? And I, and I think that these are true for people. If you're this morning, if you don't have a, if you're not surrendered your life to Christ, this is true for you. If you have a long-standing relationship with Christ, this is also true for you. What are the, what's the things that we have to walk through? Number one, we need to admit we're a sinner. That's what John says. He's writing there to the church. He's saying, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And that's true for me. That's true for you. We have sin. We struggle with sin, pride, lust, all of these things, greed, laziness, all of these things every day. We have to live in a way that we understand that we're a sinner. And then when I live that way, it reminds me I'm so grateful for who God is and what he's done for me. What's the next thing once we have that understanding that we're a sinner? We need to surrender to Christ. That means we need to give up control. We need to let him direct the train. He need, he's to direct our life. We need to give him control of our life. So we admit we're a sinner. I can't do this. I've not done it well. When I drive myself, I'm always putting it in the ditch. So I'm going to surrender to Christ, to the king, and I'm going to let him drive. And then we live for the glory of God. If, if our goal is to live for him, I mean, that's just, and I know that it's, it's a challenge. I'm not saying we're going to be perfect at that. We are not. By God's grace, he works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit to, to help us to be able to do that, to say no to sin, to turn away from temptation, to turn the TV off, to limit the screen time, to, to take every thought captive in our mind and not, not go there, right? You have to subdue those thoughts, put them under the submission of Christ. You cannot meditate on sin. Scripture says when, when we begin to, where does sin start? In our mind. We think about sinning before we do it. And what does Scripture says? When it, it's full grown, it leads to death. When we meditate on it and we let it feed there, it, it ultimately kills us. So we admit we're a sinner, we surrender to Christ, and we live for God's glory. I would trust that if you're here this morning and you've not surrendered your life to Christ, that's what it looks like. That, that is what repentance looks like. It's, it's coming before the king and, and dying and admitting who we are. We are the creation, not the creator. And we come in great humility and we see that. And when we do that, God is faithful and just to restore us as he's restored Peter. That's the picture here. What happened to Peter is available to everyone. The intimacy of Christ at that level is available in, for everyone in Christ. God wants to restore us, but we must humble ourselves, and that's what we see in Peter. Let me leave you with this text, then I'll pray. Revelations 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Father, today as we conclude the teaching of your word, Father, I pray that it will not return void in our life. Lord, I pray that if there's folks here today, first and foremost, who do not, have never surrendered their life, Father, I pray that you put a call on their life. You will draw them to yourself, that they will see themselves as a sinner. They will understand that the only way to be reconciled to you, to be forgiven of their sin, is to surrender their life to give you control. Father, help them not to, to be scared of that. Father, you have good for us. You have eternity for us. You are merciful and gracious. 
And Father, give us the desire to live a life for your glory. And how we talk, and how we live, how we spend our money, how we serve others, how we share the gospel, Father. And Father, for those of us that have long-standing relationship with you, Father, may those things be true in our life as well. Help us not to be self-righteous. Help us to be humble. Help us to feed the sheep, our brothers and sisters that are all around us, because you have restored us and you've given us purpose that we must live for you and be ready to die for you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.